Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights Podcast. I'm Nash Srinivas, Corporate Communications Group Manager here at the firm. And today we have a very special episode for you. It's a segment I call Advisor's Corner, where we talk about some common client questions we're receiving from our clients around the country. Joining me today for this segment is U.S. Client Services Vice President Casey Ellis. Hi, Nash. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Casey. So, Casey, there's a lot of things obviously going on in global capital markets. There's things going on with the industry as well. I'm sure, I'm sure we always get questions on any number of different topics, but what are some of the things that clients are calling in and asking their investment counselors about today? Sure. Well, there's any number of things, and as you can imagine, a lot of those topics change over time. Right, A lot of those are current event-based, what might be going on in the economy, in the political arena. You might have noticed there's a lot going on in uh, both of those sides right now. You know, Frankly, if we get too far into those, by the time you get this podcast out, most of those will be irrelevant. We'll be on to new things. So maybe it's better to focus on some of the things that are more um, timeless in nature that we get all of the time from questions like, how might investors reposition their portfolio when they retire? Should I get more conservative? What should I do? What might that portfolio look like? Now, those are the sorts of things we get uh, most common, including what types of investments, what types of instruments, maybe products, strategies, you name it. And so we spend a lot of time counseling our clients through, through questions like that. I'd say that's the, the, the biggest subset of things that we get. So let's start with that one that you mentioned right off the bat. You know, As people are approaching retirement, how do we advise them or how do we go about recommending they build a portfolio that's aligned with their goals and objectives? Yeah. How do we set them up for success? Yeah. Well, we do just what we talked about, what you just mentioned there, which is we start with the goals and objectives. We'll get into some of maybe the wrong ways to do it here in a minute, but the right ways are generally to start with an individual conversation with the retiree or the investor about what's important to them. What are their goals for the longer term? What do they need their money to do for them? What's their time horizon, which is simply how long do they need assets to work? Do they need income or cash flow from the portfolio? How much, how often, and when? Uh, Things like tax considerations, other restrictions. Their attitude towards risk. Attitudes toward risk. All of these go into creating a customized plan that makes sense for the investor and maximizes the likelihood of them achieving those objectives uh, over the next 10, 15, 20, 40 years, however long it might happen to be. Th- th- those are the key components. And really, those, that's the most important question to start with versus should I uh, get more conservative? What type of investments might I have? What about stock A versus stock B? What about bonds? That stuff's all important, but it's a secondary question to what's important to you, what do you need, when do you need it, and what are your longer-term goals? Are a lot of clients surprised when they come to us and we don't just use a, a rule of thumb like, well, you take 120, subtract your age from that, and that's your your allocation to equities? Are people a little shocked that we don't have that kind of rubric? Absolutely. And you, know, you mentioned the rule of 100, which is a great one. Uh, that's one of the most common things. In fact, if you just Google something like uh, how much of my portfolio should be in stocks when I retire, you'll see that one all the time which to your point is just take your age, subtract it from 100, and that's the percentage of the portfolio that ought to be in stocks. And while that's cute and easy to remember and pretty simple, it's, for the most part, wildly inappropriate for most people. Uh, if you just think about two 65-year-old uh, people, let's just consider that the average retirement age, give or take. You know, the simple rule of 100 would say that you ought to only have 35% of your account in stocks and then 65% in income-bearing securities or cash. 
And the problem with that is it only considers one feature or factor of an individual, which of course would be their age. And if I had a room full of 65-year-olds here today and you went around the room and you asked them what they wanted to do looking forward, what their health was, what restrictions they might have in the account, what their risk tolerance was, what their goals were, all of these different things would be very different person to person. And you have to create a strategy that makes the most sense for the individual investor and not just based on some silly kind of um, you know, overly, uh, overly applicable rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what else are we hearing from clients today? Well, you know, one of the questions that we get kind of tied to our first one is, you know, again, there's this notion which we didn't really get into the details early on about, um, you know, when I retire, I feel like I need to get more conservative. People tell me I need to get more conservative. That's kind of conventional wisdom. One of the things that we oftentimes need to counsel clients against when they reach retirement or maybe just generally as they're getting older is about oftentimes the need for more equity-like growth or more growth in their accounts period than they probably appreciate or can fathom. And so this question around, should I get more conservative, again, is an individual question that's best answered working with your individual investment advisor. But I think highlights the notion that most people underappreciate the dangers of inflation, loss of purchasing power. They also underestimate how long they're likely to live. And it's long today and going to be longer by the time that you and I get there. Uh, hopefully, you know, many, many years down, knock down on the wood. road, knock on wood. Uh, and so for the most part, what we see is a lot of people who want to get more, quote unquote, conservative in the portfolio, meaning more fixed income, uh, more cash, things like that, when almost always people need more growth than they might otherwise appreciate. And, uh, and that's a constant uh, discussion and conversation that we're having with clients. They think the goalpost is 10 yards away from them, when in reality, it's it's 100 yards away from Yep. A lot of people, if I'm hearing you right, think that you know retirement planning stops when you retire. Right. Really, retirement planning begins when you retire because you've got to have that money, in, in, in most cases, providing for you for 20, 30, for some people, 40 more years. And it's a generational shift where you know up until 10, 15 years ago, maybe, maybe slightly longer than that, most people retired right around retirement age. Uh, they had a pension for the most part or some sort of defined benefit plan that would carry them through the retirement age and then they died at 75 and uh, there was no need to worry about long-term retirement planning you know that has really changed uh, in the last generation certainly and maybe even going back you know further than that where uh, it is not at all uncommon for somebody to live into their 80s 90s you know, maybe even longer than that uh, and if you're the type of person where if you retire at 65 You've got a plan for retirement that could be 25, 30, 35 years long. And in almost all cases, uh, you need to do something in the portfolio that makes sure that you don't run out of money. And, and oftentimes having more growth instruments than you might otherwise think you, that you need tends to be a prudent decision. But again, individual to the client and, and you know may not be totally applicable client to client. So we're talking about retiring. And one of the topics that many of our clients are concerned about as they're nearing retirement is, well, I got to start drawing from my portfolio. I got to start generating income from my portfolio. What do we recommend to clients who are looking to generate income from their portfolio? How do we walk them through that decision-making process? Sure, I mean, if you think about why clients hire us, uh, I would say 99% of them want one of two things or combination of things from the portfolio. They want growth and they want cash flow or combination of the two, right? And so the cash flow piece there is extremely important. And if you've 
uh, done this well, what you're trying to do with your portfolio, set yourself up for uh, the amount of cash flow that you need to live the life that you want to live in retirement and be comfortable. So we take that decision very seriously. I think one of the things that people oftentimes get confused is they want to confuse uh, income generating securities as being the only way to generate cash flow. And generally what we're talking about there would we'd be talking about things like fixed income or bonds or dividend uh, producing stocks or high dividend stocks or high yield stocks, whatever you want to call it. And maybe there are other instruments like annuities or things, but we're going to set those aside for right now. You know, in our opinion, those may play a role in the portfolio and have their place, but they shouldn't be the dominant strategy in the portfolio. And let's take those individually real quick. If you think about fixed income, fixed income is simply you're uh, lending money to somebody else in exchange for a fixed coupon payment, uh, whatever that happens to be. And that is one way to get income. The problem with fixed income is that the income is literally fixed. So if the coupon's a thousand bucks, you're going to get a thousand bucks in perpetuity. Maybe that keeps up with your standard of living. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, they're also susceptible to things like interest rate risk and all of those. So there's some some other things to be aware of there. But again, bonds have their place in the portfolio. If you think about something like dividend producing stocks, they also play a role. But dividend producing stocks, uh, one of the things we see most often is that people load the portfolio up with dividend pr- producing stocks which is really no different than loading up in any single category like energy or technology or German stocks or small cap. Uh, Those are fine when dividend paying stocks or value in particular is doing well, but in periods when uh, that is out of favor and or periods where a company has a terrible run, a terrible year and slashes their dividend, uh, it's not going to do you much good in the way of the overall health of your portfolio. So we caution people against that. We think for the most part, there's a better way. We at Fisher call this uh, generation of homegrown dividends, which is simply saying that if you need some amount of, of cash from the portfolio, let's call it 2,500 bucks a month, you, know, you ought to keep that and then some uh, available in the portfolio at any time. And you can generally raise that cash pretty safely over time through simple things like paring back positions that have grown larger than you might otherwise want them represented in the portfolio. Certainly dividends that do come into the account, either from fixed income or from stocks. Uh, Tax loss sales, when we need to do trades to to try to uh, raise losses to offset gains, you'll have some cash available from that. For the most part, for people who have traditional and modest income needs or cash flow needs, that's more than enough to get them what they need while maintaining a portfolio that has the likelihood of uh, improving or achieving their long-term objectives and not over-concentrating them in in uh, one category or, or one uh, security type that they can have other problems down the road while they seek to solve a different problem. So a topic that I see written about a lot in newsletters and people asking questions about in our industry is is dollar cost averaging. Yeah, Clients call in and ask, well, you know, I'm going to get my portfolio invested. Aren't you going to dollar cost average this out as you build it? Yeah, we get that question cr- quite frequently. You know, dollar cost averaging, uh, has two components to it, and I'm going to specify my comments are are germane to one part of that, but maybe not the other. You know, one type of dollar cost averaging, and all that is, by the way, is just putting regular uh, systemic amounts in the market at regular intervals of periods of time. Or so if you have a fixed investment. sum of money as opposed to just investing it all at once, yep. you break it up into tenths and you just invest that. You got it. That's exactly right. So one kind of dollar cost averaging is what you or I might do in our 401k. Right? I get paid every two weeks, I take a portion of my paycheck, I put it in my 401k. That's dollar cost averaging in terms of its method, but it's not really dollar cost averaging in spirit because I have no choice. Right, I'm just investing the money as I get it. 
What we're really talking about when we talk about dollar cost averaging is somebody who has a lump sum of money, doesn't matter what the dollar value is, let's just for simplicity sake call it $100,000, and is trying to decide when the best part time to put that into whatever investment we'll use the stock market as an example might be. The theory behind dollar cost averaging is by putting that into the market a little bit at a time at regular intervals is that you avoid the risk of getting into the market just before some sort of precipitous decline or a bad day or a bad month. And the hope is that by doing that, you lower your risk, you improve your returns, and you lower your overall cost basis over time. Cost basis is just your, your purchase price. You're, you're, you're timing the market. You're timing the market. You don't think you're timing the market. In fact, you actually think you're trying to avoid timing the market. <laughs> But the reality is you're timing the market. And dollar cost averaging has a few problems with it uh, and generally causes us not to recommend it. One is that for the most part returns on what we would call the lump sum method, simply putting the money into the market when it's available, presuming you have sufficient time to let the money work, 10, 15, 20 years or more, almost always will provide superior returns relative to dollar cost averaging. We at Fisher have done studies on that. If you don't trust our research, there are lots of, lots of academics who've done research on this. And on average, somewhere between 65 and 75% of the time, lump sum investing or simply putting into the market, money into the market when you have it, generally is a, long, is a better strategy so long as you have time. You know, the other feature of this is the market goes up two thirds of the time. So if you just think about this intuitively, uh, if you've got an instrument or an investment that goes up two thirds of the time, why in the world would you sit on the sidelines knowing that two-thirds of the time you're going to lose money on sitting on the sidelines. And then finally, one other consideration which I think is less acute today than maybe it would have been 15 years ago, but it's still worth considering, is simple cost. Uh, if you think about putting money into individual equities 12 times versus putting it into individual stocks one time, you're going to pay likely 12x the commission cost to do that. At some discount brokers, maybe that's not the biggest deal in the world, but at others it might be. Uh, and so that's another consideration that can eat away from people's returns that they generally don't think about when they think of dollar cost averaging. One cute uh, dollar cost averaging story that I'll just tell you from my personal experience. Uh, now, early in my uh, early in my professional career, I didn't know the first thing about any of this stuff, and uh, I had read about dollar cost averaging and how that was smart. And so when my 401k came, I used to dump 250 bucks uh, every two <laughs> weeks into my 401k, and I would use that 250 bucks to buy an exchange traded fund low cost, passive in my 401k, and I paid a trading commission of $11.95 every time I did that. <laughs> so if you simply do the math on uh, on what that was, I was uh, I was you know throwing away four, five, six percent of my return immediately just on the upfront fee because I didn't understand the true cost of upfront costs. How, how far you've come. How far I've come. And here I am uh, dispensing advice on the, uh, on the podcast radio. <laughs> you know, the other thing that, that strikes me about dollar cost averaging and just the way the market works is that market returns are pretty lumpy. Sometimes you get really, really big returns in a very few number of days. And so if you're trying to time the market, you're trying to do dollar cost averaging and you miss out on just some of those very few big days in the market, you do actually end up impacting your long-term returns pretty sizably. That's absolutely right. And remember, dollar cost averaging, just by logic and intuition, you have to know that dollar cost averaging only works when the market's going down. And there's a reason why over the last eight years when we've been in a you know pretty strong bull market, nobody really talks about dollar cost averaging because it would have been a bad move pretty much at any time in the last eight years. But certainly if we have another 2008 or a long period of correction or volatility or whatever, we'll hear a lot more about it. Mm -hmm. But to your point, if you need equity-like returns, you're better off just being in equities. And the way to get equity-like returns 
is to be in equities. It's time in the market, not timing the market. That's right. That's a, that's a succinct way to say it. So what are some of the, the popular products or strategies that many of our clients are asking about? We've heard about passive and ETFs quite a bit. Are we getting clients asking questions about those? Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you think about, I've been with the firm for uh, coming up on 14 years now, and I would say it's been a material shift over the time that I've been here about the rise of passive or low cost or indexing or whatever you want to call it. I mean, all of those things are, are kind of uh, symptoms of the same thing. Uh, but we hear about all that. Uh, we hear about that all the time, and. Uh, it's a constant uh, discussion that we have to have with clients about the trade-offs and the pros and cons of passive investing. And if you're not familiar with passive investing, passive investing at its core is simply uh, buying an index or a basket of securities. You're not actively managing it, meaning you're not uh, being dynamic in the portfolio and changing based on what you think is going to do well or not going to do well. You would just buy something big and broad like the S&P 500 or the Dow or the world markets and then you might ride that uh, into perpetuity over the next 15, 20, 30 years. The advantage of doing that, it's generally speaking very low cost. Uh, generally speaking, uh, you're guaranteeing yourself pretty close to market-like returns, which we know that most investors don't get over time. The problem is uh, it works really great in theory, but in practice doesn't always work out quite that well. And one of the biggest problems with passive investing is that there's no service and no discipline associated with that. And people are behavioral creatures who tend to make wrong decisions at the wrong time, buying when the market's high, selling when the market's low, indexing really provides, or passive provides no protection against doing that. And if you think about who the primary enemy of good long-term returns is, it's generally not your portfolio strategy or your portfolio strategy. It's almost always your own behavior. Mm -hmm. And passive, because it's low cost and because it's easy, so often sets people up to make those behavioral decisions that, that can really hurt them in the long run. People just can't stay disciplined to the strategy long enough to even get those market-like returns. Of course. They, they often even, I think there's been studies done that say that individual investors often actually underperform even what their mutual fund strategies do. So mm -hmm. the mutual funds outperform them because they just can't stay in the mutual fund long enough to get even the mutual funds returns, let alone market-like returns, assuming, of course, the mutual fund's underperforming the market. Yeah, you, you just think about the last 10 years. So as we're recording this, it's uh, kind of mid-April of 2017. And you think about the last 10 years, that encompasses a real big, nasty bear market through late 2007 through early 2009. And then, of course, the bull market of the last seven or eight years, which has been relatively volatile along the way. And you think about the difficulty of indexing or passive investing, of trying to stay disciplined, particularly if you're more of a novice with this stuff. Uh, than maybe others might be. It's a really hard thing to do. And uh, to have that kind of intestinal fortitude to be able to stick with it and get the returns that come with hanging in the market, both when times are good and when times are bad, is a really tough thing to do. And you know this from working at the firm just as I have for a long time. You know, we see new folks come into the firm quite often who have been sitting on the sidelines in cash for a good majority of this bull market uh, simply as a function of you know, not being able to stay disciplined to a well thought out plan, passive or otherwise, and that's almost always the stuff that really creates problems for people longer term in, in terms of hitting their, their long term goals and objectives. And of course, a lot of the barriers to trading have fallen. ETFs make it easy to trade yep. on a on an intraday basis. Of course, commissions are falling now too. There's yep. there's really nothing in terms of a a break to prevent people from making those those errors, the cost of making those errors are very, very low in the short term, but in the long term, they end up being very, very 
big cost in terms of getting that market-like return, getting people to their goals and objectives over time. Absolutely. And the perverse thing is that so many of the things that are pros or positives of, for instance, something like an exchange-traded fund or an index fund are also the things that make it such a negative. And you highlighted those. Easy to get in and out of, low cost, no barriers to exit or entry. Uh, the things that make them easy make them easy to trade. And generally speaking, the more you trade, the more you do, the more you react uh, to fears and fads at the moment, almost always the worse off you are uh, mm. in the longer run. That's exactly right. I think the proof case for that is studies have been done that say that load mutual funds or investors in load mutual funds actually outperform right. the investors in similar no load mutual funds. And it's because that load feature, having to pay the sort of that exit bill to get out of the fund yep. is a break. It keeps them in the fund, keeps them getting that actual return that they would have otherwise sold out of. That's when, absolutely right. You know, emotions were high. Yep. Yep. And in some ways, uh, what you think on its face does the investor a disservice may actually be helping them in the longer run. Uh, well, Casey, thanks for joining us. That's all we have time for today. Thanks, Naj. I appreciate you having me. For more, please visit MarketMinder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2017.